Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I feel like I'm in Birdman. I actually, I feel like I'm in Birdman a lot of the time, but I usually don't have the drum soundtrack. All right, well, welcome to our show today. This is the Monday Scramble, and we're thinking of just kind of converting to just being a show about currency, because you may remember that last week we had a lengthy interview with Arthur Chu about the advisability, in Arthur's opinion, of removing the face of Andrew Jackson from the 20 and replacing it with something else. And I, I would guess judging from Arthur's overall state of mind about that, that he'd be happy if it were Frodo or something. I mean, he'd just, just get Jackson out of there. So now we're going to look at the flip side of that today, uh, because in the intervening week or so, we started thinking and talking and being a little bit more informed about, well, I mean, let, let me put it a different way. As I was getting ready for last week's show and getting ready to write last week's intro, I was just kind of looking at currency and looking at charts of sort of what's on various pieces of American legal tender. And you don't have to look at that for very long to be reminded that it really is just all white guys. It just is all white guys. Uh, limited edition uh, dollar coins notwithstanding, it's all white guys. So what do you do about that? How do you ever change that? And that's an almost more interesting question to me than getting Jackson off the 20, although I like that idea too. Uh, anyway, joining us now is Susan Addis-Stone. She's the executive, executive director and strategist of Women on 20s, a movement, in fact, to get a woman on the $20 bill, which would, in fact, mean getting Andrew Jackson off the $20 bill. Uh, you can learn more, by the way, about this movement uh, at the website Women on 20s, and 20s is uh, spelled new, well, actually it's 20s. Uh, womenon20s.org. So, uh, Susan Addis-Stone, first of all, tell us how long this particular project has been running. Well, um, the project, the voting, um, which is uh, what people can do uh, when they go to our website, vote for um, their uh, choice of, out of 15 women to be that person to replace Andrew Jackson, that voting has been going on since March 1st. Uh, it's just a little over a week ago we started with the beginning of Women's History Month. Um, we had been rolling the candidates out one at a time to give them a chance to be uh, known and uh, for people to you know, familiarize themselves you know, with the candidates. Um, we had started that uh, mid-February. But the voting itself started March 1st. And um, what would be the process? Let's say that at the end of this process of voting... Uh, there's consensus around somebody. And we'll talk about some of the names as we go along here today. Um, what would be the actual process by which you would uh, begin to try to persuade the U.S. government to put something on its currency that's not on its currency right now? Well, um, we're starting with um, the goal of getting at least 100,000 votes because those votes uh, uh, serve and also as kind of um, – uh, names on a petition, uh, and the White House requires um, 100,000 uh, vote voters or petitioners um, to consider making um, executive changes, 
And this would be um, something that the president could ask the Treasury Secretary to do without permission from Congress. Um, there's no, uh, there's nothing in the code for paper currency that requires um, a change of uh, law. And um, that's one of the reasons that we've chosen to go this route. Creating a new denomination would change that. That would mean, yes, we'd have to be going to Congress for this. And that's something that um, would then throw the whole process into question. But this is something that is uh, really very doable. And that's why we chose this strategy. I want to mention uh, this uh, will be a conversation we'll be having here in the first segment of the show. If you have thoughts about it, call now, 860-275-7266. Let me say that slower, 860-275-7266. We'd love to hear from you uh, either about the overall idea of having a woman on the currency or who it is that you would like in particular to see. Um, so, first of all, good strategy because, I mean, getting Congress to order lunch at this point is pretty much impossible. So good strategy uh, going uh, around uh, around the end that way. Let's talk about – now, there are some basic rules, right, for who can be on money. Uh, you have to be uh, – have to have been dead for at least two years. Uh, and what else? What are the other rules? Uh, you have to be a person of great stature. And they also um – had some language in there that said that, you know, they should be somewhat known to the public. Um, their image should be known to the public. Now, you know, that's a tall order for a lot of um, the women that we're proposing because they should be known to the public, and, and they're, they're not as well-known as they should be. So we're trying to change that with this campaign, and we think that, um, uh, you know, the president uh, would probably uh, – interpret it the same way. Um, I might also add, by the way, that last um, July, in a speech, uh, just before a speech that the president made um, in Missouri, he, he, uh, he uh, mentioned that he'd gotten a letter from a, a little girl in New Jersey asking him why there were no women on our money. And he, uh, he said uh, that he got, and that, that she had actually proposed a number of names. And he said, you know, I think that's a pretty good idea. And so, uh, you know, we're we're taking him at his word on that, and um, we hope that he's gonna gonna like, uh, you know, uh, the proposal we're making. Um, by the way, you, you may also tweet at us at WNPR Colin, WNPR Colin, as we go along here. So some of the um, the the, uh, the choices that uh, you offer are, are Alice Paul, Betty Friedan, Sh Shirley Chisholm, Sojourner Truth, Rachel Carson. Rosa Parks, Barbara Jordan, Margaret Sanger, Patsy Mink, Clara Barton, Harriet Tubman, Harriet Tubman, uh, Francis Perkins, Susan B. Anthony, Eleanor Roosevelt, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. That's a lot of choices. Are you worried that by doing it this way, you're just going to kind of fragment uh, all the constituencies rather than getting everybody to, to group up around one single choice and push hard for that? Well, um, our process is uh, a two-step process. Uh, the first round of voting, which is the round we're in right now, um, is is um, you know going to uh, we're we're you know we've got a bigger ballot of 15 candidates because frankly it was just really hard to get it down to 12 and still have uh, a diverse and uh, a group of of women represented and what I mean both you know ethnically diverse but also diverse in 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 their um, pursuits you know just the kinds of things they contributed to our culture. 
and our, our society and the impacts they made. So um, the first 15 will be um, voted on, and people get to vote for three uh, in this first round. Then um, we will start a second round, and, and that round will be the top three vote-getters. Um, so that'll be a little easier for people to digest. And uh, I can tell you that, um, you know, the... Uh, the numbers, you know, they're 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 rolling in, and um, you know, uh, the the certainly the the top five contenders are all in uh, quintuple digits at this point, tens of thousands of votes each, and they're you know they're running uh, neck and neck at this point, and um, and you know things can things can change, uh, even some of the the ones who are um, running a little behind in the pack could uh, could have. Uh, you know, a surge because some of the media coverage is focusing. Uh, you know, if someone is a, is a um, you know a hometown hero or whatever, we're having you know newspapers and radio stations from you know the hometowns or the home states of some of these candidates who are going to be pushing, trying to push out the vote for for some of these uh, maybe lesser known people like. Um, I, well, I won't mention any names. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you're being very careful here. So let me uh, grab a call here from uh, Jim in Newtown. Hi, Jim. You're on the air. Hey, thanks. What's on your mind? Well, uh, I just caught the beginning of this conversation, but it occurs to me Sacagawea would be a great candidate, but I've just realized she's already on a special gold coin. Well, uh, let's talk about that uh, with you, uh, Susan uh, Artis Stone. So, two women have been on on sort of limited edition coins, right? Susan B. Anthony, I don't know if they're really technically well, limited edition coins. Susan B. Anthony and Sacagawea. Right. So they're they're really uh, they weren't exactly limited edition coins. They were meant to be uh, first starting with Susan B. Anthony in nineteen. I think it was seventy eight. Um, it was supposed to be a, a dollar coin. And um, it, it was minted for two years, but uh, it was not popular at all with the public because it it was uh, too similar in size and appearance, being silver. Uh, it looked like a quarter, and mm-hmm. people were you know probably spending more money than they wanted to with her, um, thinking they were you know using a quarter. They were really spending a dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so they decided the Treasury uh, redesigned that coin, and uh, uh, um, they actually minted it again in 1999. But um, at that point, they uh, they brought out the Sacagawea coin that you were uh, talking about, and it was a gold uh, co- coin uh, or golden color, and it was a dollar uh, coin and it, it is still minted, but in very small quantities today. So you know the upshot is that it's pretty hard to find a Susan B. Anthony in your everyday, um, you know, uh, dealings, um, and uh, and the Sacagaweas are getting harder to find too. Uh, when I went to the bank and uh, got um, a roll of twenty-dollar coins, um, I got one Susan B. Anthony about five or six Sacagaweas, and the rest were a new issue of John Adams, or a newer issue. I don't know when that started coming out. but So, you know, that seems to me not a fitting enough um, way to honor the women who have contributed so much to the shaping of the country the way it is today. No, and what we want is... If we want this, we want it to be a form of currency that people use all the time. And the truth is, although I did see some Sacagawea, I was cleaning out a house 
over the weekend that I saw some Sacagawea dollars that had been squirreled away from somewhere. But it just people don't use it all the time. There was still a problem with the size and look of that coin. It really looked like something that you would mistake and use in some wrong-headed way as opposed to it really being obviously a dollar. So it does, I think, kind of make sense for it to to be on the 20. It, was any thought given, and this is a, a tweet that we just got from uh, from Mark Oppenheimer, uh, could, could we do, as with quarters, and have multiple images? And in other words, is it necessary to get rid of Jackson, or could we just do a whole bunch of 20s that had Harriet Tubman on them or, or, or Eleanor Roosevelt? Yeah, um, you know, that was something that uh, we, we talked about early on um, when we were, you know, uh, devising a strategy. And our fear was that um, anything other than replacing the portrait with another single portrait uh, could be construed as uh, outside of the uh, the rules, and that that could kick this, you know, to Congress. And so we were trying to avoid uh, doing that. Now, that's not, you know, that's not to say that whoever comes out of this process on top is going to be that person. Um, you know, if the president decides he wants the Treasury Secretary to make this change and put a woman on the twenty, um, you know. Uh, they may choose to go with someone other than our front runner, um, but uh, they, you know, it's possible that there's some way of um, putting multiple, uh, you know, changing the image out uh, every year or two. But I, I, I should say that um, the our, you know, every denomination is redesigned about every ten years for, uh, you know, for um, security purposes to. Mm-hmm stay a step ahead of counterfeiters. So the it so happens that the 20 is up for redesign right now and the money this is important because a lot of people think that you know we have to get money budgeted by Congress to to, uh, to have this redesign but that's not the case. The money is already in the treasury budget. It's for redesign uh, they they redo the plates you know, they, they, they put holograms in, they do all kinds of new things to, uh, you know, to foil uh, the bad guys out there. And um, so we're, we're really just saying next time you redesign it, uh, that portrait should just be a different, a different uh, one. Yeah, and to me, here's the most penetrating argument uh, against the so-called Oppenheimer plan, which uh, automatically is just discredited for, for being called the Oppenheimer plan. But... Um, the reason that I think you should oppose it is because of the Sacagawea phenomenon. In other words, you know, I don't know, by as of 2012, there were like 3 million Sacagawea coins. Well, I mean, you certainly need to print more currency than LeBron James makes per year in the NBA, right? So, I mean, it's just ridiculous. If, if you're going to have, if it's going to be discretionary, you don't have to print all of them th- this way. Then it's in the hands of somebody else who's kind of deciding how many of them are going to have that image. And the answer may very well be, based on prior experience, not enough. So, um, so that's yeah. the pro- that's the there's, problem. You got to go. There's also a concern, Colin, that um, that you know because uh, the dollar is considered almost in. <clears throat> almost like a universal currency and international currency mm-hmm. that if we keep changing the images too uh you know too often um that it won't be recognized um by you know by users outside of this country um they might not uh you know they might get confused about you know what 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 you know what bill that was in their hand but so that's another reason that we don't want to get too um you know 
fancy or complicated with it. All right. So um, let's go to the phones again here. Here's Derek in Windsor. Hi, Derek. How come women? Why aren't women calling in? This is about women <laughs> on currency. Why are women not calling 860-275-7266? 860-275-7266. Hi, Derek. You're on the air. We love yeah, you, fine. Derek. How are you? Fine. My concern is, you know, why is it only dead people and the money? Why is it only... That's, that's well, one. And two... I would love to see, you know, Martin Luther King or Barack Obama. Well, I think if Barack Obama were to sign an order putting Barack Obama on the currency, first of all, it does uh, violate that rule that you have to be dead. And second of all, that's the kind of reason that they have the rule so that people don't have to worry <laughs> that somebody's going to do something self-aggrandizing with this. But, you know, um, in terms of it, I think one part of Derek's point is, can it be somebody African-American? On your list, you got plenty, right? Mm -hmm. Shirley that's Chisholm, right. Sojourner Truth, Rosa Parks, Barbara Jordan, Harriet Tubman. That would probably be my choice. Uh, um, but there are plenty of African-American choices on the list, correct? That's absolutely correct. And it would, I, you know, I agree. It, you know, Martin Luther King is exactly the kind of person that uh, belongs on our, uh, you know, paper currency, someone that, um, you know, speaks to, you know, the diverse nation that we've become and, and, and all of the strides in, you know, equality uh, that, that, you know, have come about since, 1929, when the images were last, uh, you know, changed, and so uh, we. But we think that because there are no women on there, one out of, you know, the 11 bills really should have that woman, and she should be on a bill that we use, you know, frequently. I, th I think a point that you alluded to before is an interesting one too, which is that in fact American currency does appear in other countries. There are, I think, is it Costa Rica? There's at least one country that I think that uses our currency uh, yeah. as their currency. I could be wrong about that. That could be a fact I just made up. But in other words, it's one of the ways we introduce ourselves to the world. Uh, and so one of the ways that we therefore introduce ourselves to the world under the current system is a place that's all about old white guys uh, yeah. and and kind of nobody else. And and that's certainly not who we aim to be these days, not who we mean to be these days. And, and, I mean, the other thing that you're essentially suggesting here by compiling a list of women is it's not only a change from men to women, but a change from presidents to people who have not been presidents because we haven't had any women presidents. Uh, and that's pretty much universally, with the exception of those coins we talked about, um, who winds up on, on currency is presidents. Except for, um, don't forget... Uh, Alexander uh, Hamilton. Yep, Alexander Hamilton and, and who ben else? Benjamin Franklin. You've got the two. Yeah, those are the two. Right. But but, um, but also, uh, Colin, you know, internationally, um, there are uh, you know, most uh, most a lot of countries do have yes. women on their on their on their paper currency. We we really uh, you know are are kind of behind on that. I think also a lot of countries have a much more expansive notion, not only in terms of sort of just diversity of who should be on their currency, but also in terms of what kind of life should result in your being on a currency. In other words, there's a lot of countries that do our, uh, honor writers and artists. And, I mean, you don't have to have been a founding father, quote-unquote. Right. You don't have to have been a president. Uh, there are other ways to get on the currency by living a life dedicated to other things. And yeah. I, I, I do we also feel that, you know, the, the point of this campaign is is to recognize that in 2015, you know, we're a very different country than we were in 1929 when the when the, those portraits were chosen that we have in our wallets today. 
you know, and so I, you know, our paper money should reflect that. And it's hard to argue that there aren't women who've been enormously influential in securing, you know, many of the rights and protections that define us as a society. So, you know, they've earned their place alongside those men. And, you know, I think, you know, I've, I've said uh, before that, um, you know, the money we have today, I, I call it money 1.0, and it's it's time for money 2.0 in the 21st century. Well, I hope it all works out. Personally, I would go with either uh, Eleanor Roosevelt or Harriet Tubman because I think those are the easiest ones to get through. But what do I know? Um, and but either one of them would be great choices. So we should once again say that if people want to participate in this, they should go to. We'll put the thing up on our website. A link up on our website at wnpr.org. But it's women on twenties, and the twenties twenty is expressed numerically. Women on twenties.org. Um, Susan Addis Stone, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks, Colin. And so let me tell you what's coming up. Uh, towards the end of the show, you're going to hear the wonderful Kalila Brown Dean from an airport as she's making her way back from Selma. But right now we're going to introduce you to one of the reporters who's covered the case and tried to crack the incredible mystery of Robert Durst, now a documentary on HBO. That's uh, Jeff Cohen whistling in the background when uh, Ray Hardman uh, did that promo. I watched them go in the studio together. It was very exciting. All right, so one of the things that I was thinking about this morning uh, in connection with uh, Robert Durst and with our next guest is, you know, we've talked a lot on this show about over-incarceration in America, uh, how we really are the world's jailer nation. We just lock a lot of people up at an incredibly high rate, uh, and that's really true. On the other hand, there are people who are just impossible to lock up no matter what they do. Uh, that's sort of the flip side of that. And Robert Durst, uh, I think, looms pretty large in that regard. Uh, he has been involved in three cases that involve either the death or disappearance, permanent disappearance, uh, of apparently per- a permanent disappearance of someone. Uh, he has done astonishingly little time for any of that. Uh, and so this uh, documentary uh, the, uh, on HBO, The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, uh, explores a lot of those mysteries. And for me, as a longtime reader of The New York Times, also answers the question, what does Charles Bagley look like? Because I've been reading his stuff for a really long time, and he pops up in the documentary from time to time. And then this morning in the paper, he has an article uh, about the Durst case, which he's been covering for a long time, and about the newest de- development in this. So first of all, Charles Bagley, welcome to our show. Well, good morning. Thanks for having me. So um, I scarcely know where to begin, and you've been covering this uh, for a long time, but maybe we could begin with the fact that Robert Durst, who has been a person of interest in the disappearance of his wife, never to be seen again, uh, the death by gunfire of a friend of his, a very close friend of his, and a person who was kind of the spokesperson for him during the coverage of the disappearance of his wife, and then a neighbor uh, that he had in in Galveston, Texas. Um, He has cooperated with these documentary filmmakers, uh, and and he's he's there talking extensively uh, about his involvement in these cases and how he sees them. And, I mean, as somebody who's sort of watched him very carefully over the years, um, A, does this surprise you? And, B, what incentive do you imagine that he might have had to to cooperate so fully in a project like this? Well, when I first learned that he had sat down for these interviews, it is, you know, you're sort of flabbergasted uh, that that somebody would take that risk given – the, the sort of mysteries and interests surrounding you. 
uh, and I and I know because he, he's told me, but all all his many lawyers told him, Bob, you're a free man. Why don't you just be quiet and and stick to that? You're jeopardizing your situation. But I think that as he says in probably the first episode, what he found so tantalizing was the idea that he might be able to tell his story in an unfiltered way. That even though the, 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 these filmmakers had done a fictional film about his case, that doesn't leave you wondering whether uh, what happened to his wife. Uh, you know, they uh, he, he felt they painted a sympathetic portrait of himself. So he agreed to cooperate. And I think uh, he wants very much. He's 71. He wants to tell his story. And I think he also wants to drive his brother crazy. Uh, so any kind of story that he can tell that he knows will be offensive to his brother, whether it's about his father, their father, or their business, you know, he, he'll tell it. You know, the other thing is he knows, I guess he sort of quote-unquote knows, that he's pretty good at telling his own stories. In this Texas case, which is the, the one that really, the only one he was ever sort of tried on, the, this, the, the killing uh, of his neighbor, uh, if I recall this correctly from the documentary, um, he, that his, his defense attorney, Dick DeGuerin, DeGuerin, took the unusual step of not only putting him on the stand, but putting him on the stand first. The defense began their case uh, by putting this guy on the stand. Typically, if you're a defense attorney and you have a client who is facing such serious charges, and he's kind of a strange guy anyway, uh, which I think we could all agree Robert Durst is, um, you just you don't put that guy on the stand, and you certainly don't open your case with him. But it works for DeGarren. Well, it did work. Uh, I was in the courtroom when Bob testified, and in a flat monotone, he told this horrific story where he is cutting up the body with a bow saw that he bought from a hardware store nearby. And he's, he's literally sitting in a pool of blood while he's doing this. Uh, I think that what happened to some extent in Texas is that the police and the, and the prosecutors thought they had all the evidence in the world that tied Morris uh, Black's death to Bob. And so they didn't worry a lot about motive and, 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 and having a story they could tell the jury. So the, in the absence of a good story from the prosecution, the defense jumps in and describes Morris Black, the dead man, as, as the worst neighbor you could ever imagine. And while the two had been friends, according to Bob's story, uh, you know, he was worried. Uh, Morris was a little erratic, and he, they grappled over this gun. They tumbled to the floor. The gun goes off, and oh, my God, Morris Black is dead. Uh, so Bob says, he told the jury, I was in a panic. I, I freaked out. Nobody's going to believe me, he thought. Now, for a guy in a panic, he sure had a pretty good idea of what he had to do because that day he goes over to the Walmart and gets a money order for Morris Black's rent, and he paid it because he didn't want the landlord to come around the house looking for Morris Black. 
so then, you know, he cuts up the body, double bags uh, each part, and throws them into Galveston Bay uh, off this little concrete pier. Or, ordinarily, you do a little time just for that. <laughs> I mean, it just... Well, he did do, <laughs> uh, just to tell the whole story, yeah. Bob has done some time. Uh, when he was a college student, he was in jail for a couple of hours on marijuana charges. Uh, and with respect to the Texas case, while he got off on the murder charge, he did have to serve time for bail jumping. Remember, he led uh, authorities on a 45-day national manhunt uh, before he was captured in Pennsylvania. For shoplifting chicken salad, let's not leave that Right, point. right. And then... Uh, there was also the matter of cutting up the corpse, uh, which, you know, Texas has standards. It's, it's a misdemeanor. Uh, of uh, you're, you're messing with the evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so he did some time for that, and just as he was getting out, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Philadelphia brought a case against him on some guns that he had in his car. And so he served a little more time on that. Uh, but for the most part, he's been out and scampering between New York, Texas, and Los Angeles. Um, let's just uh, we'll play just a quick little clip from the documentary, just so you can hear uh, the delivery of Robert Durst. Did you have anything to do with the death of your wife? I don't know that she's dead. Do you think that it's possible that she's alive now? It's possible. Not likely. It's not what I think. I think she's almost definitely dead, but I don't know that she's dead. Put a finer point on it. Did you have anything to do with the disappearance of your wife? No. I don't know where she is. I don't know what happened to her. I don't know how it happened to her. I had nothing to do with what happened to her, except very um, obliquely or whatever you would, and that it was a bad marriage and that was at least half probably a lot more my fault but other than that I had nothing to do with what caused her or what happened to her disappearance it's too bad that you can't get an Emmy for acting uh, in a documentary because Robert Durst probably would deserve something along those lines. But uh, Charles Bagley, w- just to make sure we, we have time to cover the development uh, that you wrote about today. So one of the things that's happened, and it happened last night in the documentary, uh, is that, um, you know, be- just with all the kind of energy churning up around this case, um, new pieces of evidence surface, we learn new things. And, and one, of the th- one of the things that we've learned uh, involves a development in the case that has um, energized, in particular, the people who were looking at Durst as as uh, a suspect in the second uh, of these cases, the, uh, get the death by shooting of his friend and confidant, uh, Ms. Berman, in, in California. Tell us what's going on there. Well, the, uh, the authorities have long known, going back to the time of her death, that Bob was in California uh, at the time that Susan died. But, and they knew that he landed in San Francisco, that he then went north, and th- th- there was mileage on the car that he used that could have gotten him all the way to L.A. and then back to San Francisco to fly out. But they, they just didn't have any hard evidence that put him in L.A. on December 23rd, the day that they, the authorities believed that Susan died. And uh, but there was a note, right? a, a an anonymous note that was sent to the Beverly Hills Police Department, 
and it basically all it was was an address and the word cadaver mm-hmm. very ominous the uh so subsequently the the authorities did want did ask for a handwriting analysis to compare bob's handwriting to uh to this note this mysterious note which would indicate that at the very least he was in LA and that he was uh he had perhaps seen the body mm-hmm. uh but the handwriting analysis was inconclusive in part because uh, I think they were comparing cursive handwriting to block lettering that was on the note. And what happens with the revelation, the new ground that was broken on uh, last night, was that Sarah Kaufman, who was Susan's, uh, the dead woman's uh, sort of adopted son, uh, discovered a letter from Bob to Susan Berman and that looks like a photocopy of the, the the cadaver note. Right down to a misspelling of the word Beverly in Beverly Hills. Exactly. I, I, I mean, it, it it's breathtaking uh, when you see it on the screen. Uh, and, I mean, that, that seems to bring him a lot closer to the room where Susan died. Well, one of the things we see in this documentary, I'm running out of time here, I want to make sure that uh, we get this in, is, you know, I mean, I think the the pu- the, re- the puzzlement with which the, the re- regular audience member watches this documentary, like, how does this guy get away with this, um, is mirrored closely by the puzzlement of law enforcement. I mean, we're just constantly being introduced to these detectives in various locations who have the same look of astonishment on their faces. It's like... How did this? How does he do it? I mean, you must encar- uh, encounter this, Charles Bagley, in talking to law enforcement. Do they express to you uh, a surprise that somehow or other this guy is is at large? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're flabbergasted. And when he got off in in Texas, uh, one of the detectives on the case was just so infuriated, and he sent a file to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Philadelphia, and it basically alerted them to the idea that. When Bob was captured after he went on the run, there there were two guns in the trunk of the car, interstate transportation, right, uh, of of, uh, of weapons, and so the feds brought a case against Bob. But yes, the, I think that what has also been apparent is there was some pretty shoddy police work, mm-hmm. both in New York when Kathy disappeared and to some degree in L.A. Initially in L.A. they were looking at another individual. Uh, and and to be truthful and fair, I mean, it, a lot of Susan Berman's uh, aqu- uh, family members said to me at the time, you know, look, Bobby loved Susan. Susan loved Bobby. She, you know, he couldn't have killed her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in New York... The brilliant thing is that that Kathy, his first wife, goes missing on a Sunday night. This we know. Bob, in Westchester County, mm-hmm. Bob doesn't go into the police station and report her missing until. 
Friday, the following Friday. So a lot of time elapses, yeah. and the investigation. What it, what what happens is the investigation begins in Manhattan, not in Westchester. So Charles Bagley from the New York Times. We're going to have to wrap this up here. We're just we've just run out of time. Thank you so much for your time today. This is a riveting documentary, and your coverage has been great. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, Tucker Ives, and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Sydney Loro. Katie Talarski is our executive producer, and Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Eleanor Roosevelt. For show pages, articles, and secret copies of the Faith Middleton Show's tabs planned but Julia Child on the 20, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, what if you could live to 300? Would you want to? Now, back to Colin. Well, this is exciting. We're we're catching Kalila Brown-Dean, Associate Professor of Political Science at Quinnipiac University at the boarding gate. Are you in Alabama right now? I'm now in Atlanta. We Hmm. finally got out of Alabama, but I've been stuck in Atlanta. So um, you were there uh, for the Selma observance yesterday. Just first of all, uh, tell me what prompted uh, you, and I think you have other members of your family with you. Is that correct? Yes. So I co-authored a report for the Joint Center for Political Studies about the Voting Rights Act, sort of what it's meant for the last 50 years and what we should expect going forward. So we were able to present that report in Selma on Saturday to have John Lewis say, great job, to have Martin Luther King III affirm that report. It was fantastic. So I also have my husband and my six-year-old daughter also with us we were able to hear the president and participate in all of the commemoration as well. Um, I can hear people calling flights in the background. This is I'm so sorry. No, no, no. That's I. I like. I like this. I like uh, things like this. So, I mean, obviously, for uh, everybody who was there yesterday, Selma is this incredibly important important commemoration. But for issues like the Voting Rights Act, it's also a time of taking stock and saying, well, what's going on here? Are we making steady progress, or are we getting knocked back? And the answer seems very much to be the latter, right? I, I don't. I didn't read the report that you presented, but it seems like the Voting Rights Act is under attack uh, over the last maybe 10 years in a way that it wasn't before that. Certainly. And I think what's so critical about this time is that the number of people who are protected by the Voting Rights Act has increased dramatically. So the act not only protects African-Americans, it also applies to language minorities like Latinos and Asian-Americans. And we know we've seen a tremendous population boom within those communities. But over the last 10 years, increasingly in the last two years, the Supreme Court has really gutted the Voting Rights Act. And so what came out in Selma this weekend and in our report and ongoing discussion is what do we do to affirm the right to vote, to affirm the importance of democracy, and to protect that act, which has single-handedly transformed the political landscape in the U.S.? Obviously, there, particularly since the 2013 uh, Shelby County uh, decision, which ironically or paradoxically or maybe not ironically, is lo- was located not too far from Selma, right? The Shelby County, I'm trying to picture it, but maybe just exactly. a little bit a little bit north of, of Selma. Since that decision, there's been some discussion in Congress about redrafting some, something to kind of a, a fix, right, a, a different right. version of the voter, Voting Rights Act. But, you know, even yesterday with all the political clout and capital that was on display there, you wonder, can a thing like that ever get to the floor of Congress? And so that's really the question now. So you had a lot of members of Congress in Selma this weekend coming together on Saturday across the political aisle 
But we know it's going to be a really tough sell to get that new formula passed, which the court struck down in 2013, now kicks it back to Congress. So with the current makeup of the United States Congress, the fact that no members of the GOP leadership made the pilgrimage to Selma, I think it tells us a lot about how difficult that will be. And essentially, if Congress does not vote to change that formula, the Voting Rights Act will continue to be weakened. It's important not just for 2016 presidential election, but for local and state-level races as well. So the sense that I have, and I'm sure there's been a lot of fairly nuanced discussion of it over the weekend, is that it's not – I mean, you might be able to get a bipartisan vote – to pass some kind of fix in the formula, the trick being getting it to the floor, right? I mean, if you got it to the floor, there are probably a lot of Republicans who would want to vote for it, if only to not have voted against it. But getting it to the floor is so often the trick these days. Right, and it's the idea of what it, what needs to happen to get it out of committee. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most legislation like this dies in committee. The public posturing of not wanting to be the one to vote against it on the floor especially since so many members of Congress will be up for re-election in two years as well. And so looking at who controls those committees, what their interests are beyond sort of doing what's best for the country is really a holdup. So, you know, this weekend we were able to stand beside two men who marched in 1965, and they admonished us to say, You know, how dare you think nothing has changed in this country? Affirm the progress that has been made, but work to protect it and secure it for the future. And again, that happens at the congressional level, but in local levels, whether it's registrars or candidates as well. I was going to ask you a question, uh, a little bit more of a, a flabby question about the mood, and you, you've already begun to, begun to address it. Obviously, this is um, a time of reflection and a time, as those men said, to value the changes that have been made. Was that the predominant? First of all, let me just ask you emotionally, what was it like for you to participate in this? What was it like for you to be uh, up there, I, I assume, crossing that bridge? Emotionally, it was perhaps one of the most moving overwhelmingly moving moments of my life. You know, we purposely didn't see the film Selma because I wanted to experience this in the rawest sense possible. And to cross that bridge and to have my six-year-old, she was fearful Mm -hmm. because she wanted to know what would be waiting for us on the other side of the bridge. And so to allay her fears, but to also let her know the country that she is growing up in now is not the country that it was in 1965. And so to have that multi-generational moment, you know, we were there with people who had crossed the bridge in 65. We were there with young children. And across races, ages, demographics, parts of the world, really, I thought this is what makes our country great. How can we do this every day and not just every 50 years in a commemoration? You know, you just, in metaphor, exp- express the exact question of the day. What's waiting for your six-year-old on the other side of the bridge? And, you know, are you optimistic that in 12 years your six-year-old will be in a better position to exercise uh, her franchise? Or, or does, did it seem problematic yesterday? I'm definitely more optimistic of where we are now as opposed to where we were six years ago when she went to the polling place with me in 2008 as a three-month-old. So I'm optimistic, but it's a guarded optimism. 
There was a lot of discussion on that bridge yesterday, people representing the Black Lives Matter movement, talking about Ferguson. We, My daughter got to meet the first two women to ever get married in the state of Alabama. And so seeing that on that bridge, that is the hope that I have, that it can move forward if we start building those coalitions across sort of the gaps that have divided us for so long. We're talking to our, our regular guest here on WNPR, Kalila Brown-Dean from Quinnipiac, uh, which you hear in the background if you're just tuning in is an airport. She's on her way back from Selma. If her zone gets called, uh, she may just suddenly disappear, and uh, we'd hate that, but we would also understand. I'm going to just call for a little bit of tape of uh, President Obama talking very specifically, since you referenced Ferguson, uh, about Ferguson yesterday. What happened in Ferguson may not be unique, but it's no longer endemic. It's no longer sanctioned by law or by custom. And before the civil rights movement, it most surely was. We do a disservice to the cause of justice by intimating that bias and discrimination are immutable, that racial division is inherent in America. If you think nothing's changed in the past 50 years, Ask somebody who lived through the Selma or Chicago or Los Angeles of the 1950s. Okay, so the end of that quote is very much to the point that you, you made earlier. But, you know, the, uh, Kalila Brown-Dean, this is coming at a very unusual and fraught time. Maybe we just only live in unusual and fraught times. But, but to have the, Ferguson, the dual Ferguson reports come out last week, one of them essentially um, uh, assigning with the police account in the death of Michael Brown, but the other one talking about this systemic, pervasive, and, and at times really disgusting climate of, ra- of racism in one police department and, and, and giving us kind of a sense that, wow, that's what happens when you turn the lights up on one police department, but there's a lot of police departments in this country. I'm sure that's something that was talked about a a lot over the course of the weekend. It certainly was, and I think it's why it was so poignant that people had these conversations in Selma. To you know, I think post-Ferguson, a lot of the divide was, is it about individual responsibility or is it about institutional accountability? And what happened in in Selma this weekend was to say it's not either or. It has to be both. So, yes, people have to be vested in their communities. They have to be vested in their families and in their well-being. But we also have to hold people accountable when they fail us. The institutions that govern us have to represent us. And so we saw this beautiful moment on the bridge with a group of young activists from Ferguson, with a group of young activists from New York, coming together with a woman who was 106 years old. And she said to them, stop standing on my shoulders. Build for someone else. You have to cross this bridge. Now is your time. And that passing of the proverbial torch and baton, I think, is important given those reports that have come out. When you see Attorney General Eric Holder there and the question of will Loretta Lynch be able to succeed him as Attorney General, and if so, what will her mark be during her term as attorney general? Will she focus on things like police accountability, cyber terrorism, or will this really be a new turn in civil rights in the United States? I feel like in a very short time, I'm going to be sitting next to you, both of us panelists on the wheelhouse, talking about the Loretta Loretta Lynch uh, confirmation process. Um, Do you see that as one of the next big conversations uh, about this in this country? I think so. And I think, especially when we think about her confirmation, Those members of Congress who made the trek to Selma this weekend, 
who affirmed their love for people like John Lewis, now is the time to put that into action. Don't allow your trip to Selma to just be symbolic. Show us the substance. Confirm her nomination so that that department can move forward. This really difficult work facing the Justice Department right now, not just because of Ferguson and Staten Island, but broad questions across the board. And the longer we allow this to be a politicized debate, the longer we don't address the issues facing people of this country. Um, let me ask you one last question, Kalila Brandine, and then you should get on your plane. But <laughs> did, did this experience, I mean, you're already in all these issues with both feet firmly planted, but I'm wondering whether this experience, either the emotional experience on the bridge or the more detailed, nuanced intellectual conversations that uh, probably preceded it and followed it, did it change what you're going to do or how you're going to pr- approach the next four to six months uh, of your life and your career when you get back to Connecticut? I think it did. I think in some ways it affirmed what I feel called to do. So I feel this calling to be an academic that can speak to substantive political issues. How does politics affect people's everyday lives? But I think it also encouraged me to dampen some of the cynicism that I felt over the last six months to a year. To stand beside a man who is a veteran, who served this country honorably, and said, I fought for democracy abroad, but when I came home, I couldn't vote. And to think about his experience, he wept when he saw President Obama take that podium, not because of Obama as a person, but because he realized everything that he dreamt and prayed for was coming to fruition. And so for me personally, I feel like now I have even more motivation to do that whether it's thinking about how the criminal justice system, the policies associated with that disenfranchised communities of color, or this obligation to tell those stories to young people so that they understand Selma is not something that happened on a Hollywood set. Selma is happening in New Haven. It's happening in Ferguson. It's happening in Hartford. And when we address that, that's when we move forward. I'll tell you, having Kalila Brown Dean to talk to in situations like this, it's like being able to call up Wayne Gretzky to talk about hockey. I mean, she's sort of that good. All right, that's our show today. Thanks to everybody who helped out. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow. I've already forgotten what we're doing, but I can guarantee you it will be wonderful. Oh, glory!